The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And today we'll be discussing the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and the likely trajectory of the country's recovery from the most severe economic contraction since Indonesia's 97-98 financial crisis. COVID-19 struck Indonesia in the midst of a push by the government to increase the role of science and technology in driving economic development. To this end, the government enacted a new science and technology law in 2019 and has also formed a new national research and innovation agency known as BRIN. As such, we'll also discuss the prospects for a transition, as part of this recovery, to a so-called knowledge economy, an economy based on the ability to produce and make use of knowledge. To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Professor Arif Anshori Yusuf, founding director of the SDG Centre at Pajajaran University in Bandung. Today's episode is the latest in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia episodes, supported by the Knowledge Sector Initiative, or KSI, a partnership between the Australian and Indonesian governments that aims to improve the use of evidence in development policymaking. Policy and Focus episodes appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. So, Arif, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Uh, you're welcome, Dave. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, can I start with something of a general question? Um, obviously, we're 18 months or so into this COVID-19 pandemic now. Um, what has been the impact on the Indonesian economy uh, of this pandemic? Well, I think for sure the impact is very big on the economy and it's much bigger than anticipated earlier. It can be also reflected by the uncertainty of this pandemic. If you are a macroeconomist, uh, you can easily see that over the course of the pandemic, I think almost every two months or every month, most organization, international organization, national institution revise their forecast downward. So people forecasting low impact to middle impact to mid medium impact in terms of economic growth. Yeah? And then until the end, even now, the, the minus 2.1% GDP in 2020 is not expected even to the worst scenario that people forecasted at the middle of the crisis. So yes, its impact is high. If you talk about uh, macroeconomy in general, like economic growth, so it is the most severe contractions of the economy since the 1997-1998 crisis. If you do compare to that 97-98 crisis, how does the magnitude compare of the impact of this COVID-19 pandemic to that time? At that time, the economic growth collapse, of course, is much larger. So 12 to 13% economic growth. And now it's only minus two. So it's nothing in comparison. But since for 20 years, we have been experiencing stable 5% growth and then suddenly we have minus two. Uh, so it's, it's kind of big. However, I think I must say that people underestimate that number. If Indonesia normally have grow 5% and then you like suddenly collapse to minus 2, so we actually have minus 7% contraction, in my opinion, right? 
And that matter why? Because, for example, in European countries, in more advanced country, they don't have much population growth, right? They don't have much entry of new labor market force into the labor market every year. It's stable. But in developing country like Indonesia with still young populations, you have 2.0% employment growth a year. So that 5% positive growth a year is needed not only to keep people on the employment, but also to absorb this new incoming labor force. So when you normally 5% and then you just suddenly minus 2, so suddenly many people who are working, they lose their jobs. And suddenly people who are new into the labor force don't have any opportunity to work. So the social economic impact of this minus two is much bigger than, for example, minus five in Europe. Mm. But coming to your questions about the comparison, I think what actually, from academic point of view, what contrasts yeah, when comparing these two episodes of economic crisis is the impact on inequality. Mm. Uh, in 1998, the crisis is very different. This is coming from financial market, right? So monetary crisis from the collapse of the Indonesian rupiah. And then, so, and then the capital owner hurt more. The crisis actually reduced Indonesian inequality by a lot. Okay. Yes, 13% minus, but the effect of the crisis is richer people get negative impact much more than the poor. At that time, Indonesia is still much uh, rural right? rather than urban. And also in, during that crisis, the region who are, have much natural resource, actually they are gaining, gaining from the depreciations of uh, rupiah. Right? So poorer region totally get benefit than richer region. So people say that it's a more progressive in terms of the reducing inequality and the data clearly show that. But this crisis is different in terms of that, the opposite. So the socioeconomic impact is different because those who get the largest impact is the poor, not the rich. And the rich actually, so-so, it's not much. And then the data also support that. However, the Indonesian inequality data, yeah, it's measured by consumption. So it's not really capturing that. Right? Because if you measure inequality with consumption, you ignore saving. Rich people seem to lose consumption. Actually, why they don't consume? Not because they are poorer because they don't have opportunity to consume. They cannot go out, they cannot eat Australian beef into their regular cafe, for example, because they cannot do it in the lockdown. And then the data show the, the large increase in the saving deposit above 1 billion uh, rupiah uh, during the COVID crisis. So the, the poor and the rich consumption drop because of that. So the effect on Indonesian inequality Statistically speaking, because measured by consumption, it's not visible. Is there any way to more accurately measure the impact on inequality then? We have competing data, for example, labor market survey, which show actually people who are in informal sector, for example, they suffer much worse than people who have skilled job. When you look out in the real life, and it was supported by, by evidence too, because the situation in Indonesia in 2020 compared to 1998, I call it like it's the best breeding ground for the perfect storm of the COVID-19. Why? Because now Indonesia is almost 60% urbanized, almost tertiarized, and then work in urban area. 
that's where the ground zero of COVID-19. And in urban area, Indonesian who work in urban area, actually they are not those people who work in banking, in telecommunication industry, but people who work along the road, selling food, things like that. There has been a problem in Indonesian economic structural transformation when we talk about why suddenly people who get out of agriculture, we cannot stop them, suddenly end up there in urban area working low-paying jobs, many. So the government cannot just simply ask them, hey, you, don't go out. No, cannot, because they income are daily basis. So if you tell them to go out, they cannot eat. So it's ineffective, actually, in, in terms of the COVID control, uh, if you ask people just like that, without any more uh, instruments. In general, this has been a very different economic crisis, uh, looking at the economic dimension of the pandemic to what Indonesia has experienced previously. Um, how has the government responded to that economic crisis? Well, it's not easy to answer that because there are so many dimensions. Uh, in my personal view, the response has to be an integrated response. If you want me to, for example, say, is the government economy good? So I cannot separate them with the, how they also handle the health issues. Because uh, in COVID-19, there has to be one coherent framework. So it's not possible to just simply economic measure when, when your, your health is uncontrolled. It's, if, if economic, I must say that in general, the government has done a good job compared to uh, many other similar countries. Yeah? In terms of economic, I'm not talking about the health issues. Of course, it's not perfect. But first of all, Indonesia, the first economic response, I think that the one that I'm more concerned is about how to help the poor. In Indonesia at that time, the infrastructures of the social assistance is far from perfect because the database of the social targeting is still using 2015 survey, which is five years old. Yeah? Many data, even my own data, say that Almost 50% miss if you are using that data. 50% miss means some non-eligible household receive social assistance. That's fine if you have a lot of money, right? But if the consequence of that is that there are 50% of people who need the money, they don't get transferred, so that's bad, right? The data show that extent of the misses is around 50 or 40 to 50% because of that. And that's bad. Why? Because Indonesian poverty is interesting because international property is very dynamic, which means people actually don't stay poor permanently. I mean, majority of Indonesian, what we consider Indonesian poor, actually they are transient poor. Transient poor means maybe you are poor now, but tomorrow not. And then you are not poor now, tomorrow poor. So that's very dynamic. Can you imagine where the majority of Indonesian poor are dynamic like that, in that sense? So the data that is five years old, is, well, it's worrying. Very out of date. Yeah. So when the COVID hit, so you have that data. So you have the imperfect infrastructure of social assistance. And due to the same characteristic of that poverty, Indonesia are very vulnerable. Now, even the poverty rate only 10%. Actually, if you just simply increase a bit threshold, the number of poor people like jump like a lot. So the near poor is very big. And so at that time, during the first weeks or months yeah, of the pandemic, many, many estimates suggest, even uh, local government leaders yeah, sometimes say that, why suddenly 50% of my people ask for assistance? 
simply because of this COVID-19, suddenly like that. That's the situation. So at that time, I'm expecting the worst socioeconomic crisis. But I see in my own eyes that the government, in Ministry of Finance, in Social Ministry, they're trying their best. Suddenly, the social assistant extend not only in the size eh, of the transfers, but they extend progressively toward what we call the higher level income bracket. And it's quite a lot because, you know, I, I, I'm also engaged uh, with them and helping them to identify problem and issues and like that. So I see that, yeah, I say that try. And of course, eh, when you measure the poverty impact, the result that find that Indonesia is still poorer compared to the last, the previous uh, six months before COVID, for example. So increased by 1%, I think because of that reason, yeah, because of the agility, if I may say, the agility of Indonesian government in a way to cover things up in terms of this imperfectness of the social system. And there are also other things by part. For example, Indonesian poverty is very sensitive to the threshold and that the threshold is very sensitive to food inflation. So actually, in, during the crisis like that, the inflation is very, very low. So the, the threshold also doesn't increase up. So people actually doesn't have much issues in the purchasing power because of price increase. And unlike 1997 crisis, like, like inflation will rise up like very high, right? So now we don't have inflation issues. So that play part. So it means it's not enough to protect everyone, but it has avoided the much worse outcome. That's my fair, I think, judgment in terms of the socioeconomic impact. And then Indonesian government also quickly adapt their legislations in terms of how they have to spend the budget, right? Because we have a constitution which saying that we cannot spend much more than, correct me, I'm wrong, around 3% of GDP uh, as a budget deficit, right? But they quick to increase, well, whatever necessary. And Indonesian Central Bank too, they quick to say that I'm supporting whatever we need. Maybe in, in conclusion, in terms of economic, I must say that I'm quite satisfied with what the government has done in terms of the responding to the crisis in terms of the economic policies. But the result is not that satisfying yet. Yeah? Not because of the economic, but the COVID health issues, yeah, the health issues that is still not solved very well. It's a good point you make that you can't separate the health and the economic responses. Um, and certainly we've seen a lot of criticism of the Indonesian government's health response, in particular that a number of the measures that adopted have been described as anti-scientific by many observers. Um, how does that compare to the economic response? <laughs> okay. Well, well, at first, at first, at first, it's okay, I, I can say this. When Jokowi appoints the cabinet member, uh, Jokowi uh, has to do compromise, right? They have to compromise cabinet position, give to who and to which side in terms of the political parties. But Jokowi said, don't touch my economic ministers. So most of the people in the economic minister, they are professional. They are Zakan cabinet only for the economics. Most, not all, at first at the beginning. So, so we have strong uh, economic ministers uh, team, especially the Minister of Finance. You have independent central bank, you know, something like that. But in other part, people doubt because the interventions of any political parties, I think, is very strong. So many of the cabinet members not coming from professional background. So I'm not really surprised yeah, when, when the crisis 
especially the minister of health at that time is controversial, very controversial. He has very big issues with all doctors in Indonesia at that time. Yeah, even before the COVID pandemic, yeah. No, no, even before that, he was almost expelled from the member of the Indonesian Doctor Association. So at that time, I'm not so surprised when the health response is not that good. So I remember everything, starting from giving a word to people who come as a COVID-19 ambassador, anything, something not really based on science and don't listen to experts and things like that. So we, we are late in responding. And with COVID-19, I know that uh, they mix that matters a lot, right? So that's late in responding. And that seems not to improve until the government changed the minister. Also, at, at that time, the, the trade-off between health and the economy is too much emphasized in the discussions, also in the leadership, yeah? in the discussion within the leadership. So, so we have, which one we have to choose? Always the, the issue. And people forget that, no, it's not about choosing. I think at that time, that's not a very good paradigm because the, I think the correct paradigm is that at that time, economy is under the mercy of health. You cannot have economic growing if you have COVID because definitely you have to have suppressed mobility. And then Indonesia, at that time, you can see the data which shows that Indonesian actually uh, during the earlier uh, report of economic growth, Indonesia, well, in, in quote, boosting Indonesian economic growth is not so much falling compared to other countries. Actually, at that time, I criticized a lot that statement from many government uh, officials saying that, look, compared to US, compared to whatever, we only contract by a little bit. But actually, Indonesia at that time, when you look at the data of Indonesian uh, people's mobility, from Google Mobility Index, you can see that it's comparable to that. So we are not getting a heavy impact because actually on purpose, because we are not really suppress enough people to go out. So it's not an achievement in a way. So it's a natural consequences of we are not that strict. So the moderate economic impact of COVID in Indonesia is simply it's a natural consequences of Indonesian stringency that is proportional to that. So people don't notice about this. And then I said that, well, we have to pay for that because we don't know when we will end. Then, then we can see over time that actually, yes, uh, Indonesia, they need to you know, suppress more, suppress more. And I still believe that because uh, a few months ago, the many international organizations already start to report forecasts of recovery of many countries, I mean, in the medium term not only how they will grow in 2020, but also 2021 and 2022, right? And then I, I did a bit of comparative analysis of IMF data and World Bank data, right? Of how they prospect in the economy. And then I see that uh, full recovery is not expected from Indonesian economy until three years from now or four years from now. In contrast, country like US, for example, is already expecting full recovery from COVID like in one year from now, for example, in other country too. And the world on average has already shown that they will gaining full recovery sooner than what people expect from Indonesia. The data show that. So Indonesia will experience slower recovery according to this report, yeah, compared to the world's average. It's too early to say this, but my intuition telling me that it might have been related 
to how quick COVID-19 will be solved in Indonesia. Obviously, Indonesia had a massive months-long outbreak of, of COVID-19 earlier this year, um, including the spread of the Delta variant of the virus. Um, but case numbers are now coming down. The level of vaccination is not high, but is higher than what it was. Um, does it now make sense to start to talk about economic recovery from the pandemic? You mentioned that international agencies have already started doing that. Um, is it appropriate to start talking about a recovery phase now for Indonesia? And, and if so, what might that look like? I think we have to talk about it very cautiously because we have to make sure that the recovery cancel out the imbalance effect of the crisis itself. We know, and the data support that, that we know the COVID-19, unlike, for example, the 1997-98 crisis, uh, the COVID-19 crisis affect Indonesian population differently, regressively, I mean, affect the poor much more than the rich. So the good recovery need to cancel that out, at least. And then who can guarantee that? <laughs> My worry is that if the recovery, if the economic expansions of the recovery, if the government spending, you know, like dedicated to that recovery, actually benefited poor people less than the rich, so then the recovery, well, will revive the Indonesian economy activity, but just worsen the inequality effect caused by the pandemic, right? So it's not canceled out. So that's what I mean. So then we need to talk about the recovery in that perspective. So we have to look carefully what the government programs of recovery, if there is government program, it is good government program, what will likely be the company do in the recovery. Many surveys suggest, for example, that because of this COVID-19, people are aware of digital technology. 84% of firms surveyed by the World Economic Forum during the pandemic say that they will accelerate automation. So I'm not talking about government response to recovery, but I'm talking about how company will do their recovery. If the company do recovery this way, what will be the impact of Indonesian labor force? Because then definitely the recovery will be worsening the inequality impact of the pandemic. You know what I mean? I know we cannot control companies, but we, with government, can do something in terms of regulation or incentives, right, of people to compensate that effect. And Indonesia, during the last 20 years or so, there is a problem in this labor market. Many recent research suggests that actually automation happened in Indonesia quite significantly, that it may play a role in why Indonesian equality actually has increased in the last two decades, for example. If the recovery will speed this up, then we have a serious issue. It's a really fascinating point because even before the pandemic, you know, we saw in 2019 the Indonesian government passing this law establishing a national system for science and technology. Um, they've also formed this National Agency for Research and Innovation, BRIN, which are based around the idea that science and technology will drive development, um, will drive economic growth. You mentioned the recovery has to cancel out the inequality effects of the pandemic. Is there a way that science and technology can actually help that sort of recovery or will a science and technology driven recovery inevitably add to inequality? Well, it can affect both ways. I think the policy to increase 
the rate of innovation will have a co-benefit of improving equality. That's one way. But it also goes uh, in, the, in different directions. For example, company adopting technology can have the opposite effect, right? You mentioned the government agencies. Actually, when we talk about the brain, yeah, I won't expect to have significant impact within a short term or medium term. Why I say that? Because as economists, you know, I just I just see numbers. Right? The budget for this new organization a year is around 10 trillion rupiah. In comparison to uh, GDP, <laughs> that's nothing. Actually, that is consistent with data which suggests an Indonesian uh, share of risk R&D spending is very, very low compared to peers. Right? 0.08% if I don't remember, but where other peers like uh, 10 times, for example. So when, when you spend a little like that, uh, you won't see any much impact in terms of the, how innovation can improve Indonesian competitiveness. Another issue is we cannot rely too much as well on government funding, right? In terms of research, because firms need to innovate. And in many countries where the innovation ecosystem has already run quite well, I think maybe half or at least 60% in one country, half in many other countries, the R&D expenditure actually expand by the companies. But in Indonesia, I think the problem is institutions. Institution mean government, institutional quality in general. Because to make company invest in R&D, I mean, you have to have a very good institution. You, you cannot have that kind of spirit in a rent-seeking society. <laughs> you cannot. Because when you invest in R&D, then your result will look very, very far away. And the system won't reward you because of you input. You will be rewarded simply because how close you are to the power, uh, how close you are to the people in charge, how close you are to, to ministries, to, to governments, to where the, the power is. So people who are part of oligarch, for example, They are more will be financially rewarded than people. Then why do you have to innovate? So Asamoenglu is very right here. The source of economic growth, actually, yes, economic growth is coming from innovation. I mean, and economic growth is simply coming from productivity and productivity coming from innovation and innovation coming from research. This Paul Romer idea. But I don't remember who uh, the institutional economist, Nobel Prize winning institutional economist said, no, no, productivity is not the cause of growth. Innovation is not the cause of growth. They are growth. <laughs> so what is the cause of the growth? Well, as a we come out, institutions. Because the institution who decide, the good institution, will give a command to the system. Look, if you innovate, you will be rewarded. If you don't innovate, you won't be rewarded. But in a rent-seeking society, I think Indonesia is still much country where rent-seeking society is still everywhere. In, in a society like that, so I don't expect innovation to come out easily. So when you want R&D spending, half of it coming from private sectors who innovate without you solve this institutional problem, without, then you won't see any coming uh, in the near future. Those are really formidable obstacles that you mentioned, you know, a, a very low government spend on innovation, a low private sector spend on innovation, uh, an economy where closeness to power, uh, rent-seeking industries provide greater rewards than innovation. Um, is there a realistic path for Indonesia to move towards a so-called 
knowledge economy where the ability to produce knowledge and harness it for innovation uh, would be one of the main drivers of growth? Our prognosis may be pessimistic. As a people who are coming from that industry, because I'm, I'm basically part of the industry, the innovation industry, right? The universities. It's easy to see where country will be going in terms of their innovations, simply just to look at their research activities. It's a, not perfect, but it's very ideal indicators to see that, right? And then there are standard indicators of the research activity and the trend of the research activity. Basically, for example, every new knowledge, every new ideas has to be peer review. I think that's standard scientific approach. So just look at the publication of papers in very good journals coming from countries. And that's a key indication of how we will progress. And then Indonesia is going, I think, not in the correct direction uh, in terms of that, compared to other countries. For example, Vietnam is very progressive now in terms of, for example, how the policy of the research and university management policy, uh, you know, manage to incentivize researcher. The data show Vietnam has quite good progress. Other countries as well. We need people to fix this policy, and I don't see yet it coming. And this organization, I think WIFO, called WIFO, that produce uh, annual, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, annual global innovation index. There are many elements of that index. And then Indonesia is very low. Uh, even in ASEAN, the penelite, I think even Brunei Darussalam is in higher rank compared to Indonesia in terms of the innovation index. And that innovation index coming from many elements that I mentioned previously, like research and others. And also, there is a problem in the Indonesian education system in general. Indonesian years of schooling, for example, now is comparable in the world, 12 point something years. But uh, recently, World Bank, for example, correct these numbers by measuring uh, other called effective years of schooling, like the, the number of years people actually learn. And the number for Indonesia is seven something years. So from 12 to 7, so you discount a lot. So, so we have issue on that too. But my worry is much more about this research activity that's going on in Indonesia. It's not really, really going in a good direction. I guess on efforts to change the direction um, and focusing on the government here. I mean, you mentioned uh, the government spend is insufficient, just several trillion rupiah, I should say. We've also seen concerns that this new agency, BRIN, is politicized in that it has a steering committee where only around half of the appointees are scholars and its vision and mission statements position it as serving the president and vice president and serving their mission. Uh, is there a problem in the, apart from the funding, just in the approach that the government is taking to promoting research and innovation? Yeah, it's good for you to ask that because uh, there's also worry me. There's no precedence. I don't see in any countries where national research agency has to be like explicitly you know, guided by ideology. People who serve in this agency are not professional scientists. I think in many countries you will see there's definitely a minimum capacity where you want to serve in that, not to mention head of political party. That's, I don't think you will see in any country, so I'm very worried. And I also see much more worries from my colleagues, especially in social scientists, more 
because your ideas, your you know your your research motivation is a socio-political motivation. And I didn't say that they are not many worried from other uh, discipline, but political social scientists are much more worried because of there is a saying in the regulation that the reason why they established this agency with a lot of uh, non-scientists professional there is simply because to protect the state ideology. This for me is a very worrying. No, for sure. And if you start from ideology, it closes off many possible answers to questions before you even start. Exactly. That's my point. So, yeah. And to me, the problem of Indonesian innovation, the problem of Indonesian science, the problem of Indonesian research is so, so serious. And if you want to reform, you have to start clean, start big. Now you start 10 trillion. You mean you start low, you start dirty. So that's the opposite of what I expect. You have to start big, start clean if you want reform in innovation in Asia. But you do the opposite. You start small and you start dirty. <laughs> so, so, so that's why I, I said to you, I'm quite pessimistic about what's coming. Certainly some of the obstacles that you've mentioned, a rent-seeking uh, society, that's not something that's going to be changed even in the medium term, let alone the short term. But putting aside those sorts of obstacles, are there steps that it is possible to take to start to improve research and innovation in Indonesia at present? Honestly, yes. Yeah, I have to say yes. Well, again, because I'm part of the industry, so I talk with people, right? I talk with colleagues and many colleagues, many people, things alike. They know this issue, they know what they know what they have to do. And then we have room, actually, for people like this to reform, at least in their own agencies. At least to keep the spirit, you know. For example, Indonesian university, big Indonesian university has autonomy. With autonomy, actually, you have room not to obey. Well, I don't know if this is a good word or not. <laughs> There's room not to obey the state intervention because they have autonomy. I keep saying that to my colleagues, to my university leaders. Or if they say something like this, you have room to say no, you know. So let's stick to the principle. Let's stick to what's right. And then do that. So I think there are room for that uh, with the legislation. So I mean, okay, because we are only partly autonomous, right? Not not full autonomy. Yes, let's have this uh, dual strategy. I mean, dual strategy means like this. Within our autonomy jurisdictions, let's do our best to play around with the system that we have, that we make, to put principle as a first priority to do it right. Yeah? The second is what I call uh, advocacy. Advocacy means let's go to the back door of the government's offices, talk to them, try to change their policies. And optimistically speaking, I still many people who agree with this dual approach. We have a mass, a critical mass that can make a change. I know it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but there is still room, there's still hope. Yeah, certainly the, the autonomy of universities is an important resource. Does international collaboration have any role to play in driving innovation in Indonesia? And if so, how well is Indonesia placed to collaborate with external partners? Yes, yes, of course, 100% yes. Especially if you collaborate with countries that is much better than you in terms of the uh, research ecosystem, research facilities, because with the low budget like this, I mean, how can you expect we have a Nobel Prize winning research in Indonesia? Unless, for example, you are part of a team 
uh, international team right, that are doing research, right? So that international collaboration is necessary. And the larger that international collaboration, the better. So that's necessary and we have to collaborate more uh, as much as possible with international researchers, especially, I think, for young scientists, for young researchers. That's very important because the current system that is in place, I think uh, if we are not careful, we can easily be trapped by non really meaningful incentive system that don't reward uh, that kind of cooperation. Because uh, you only reward by the number of publication regarding the quality. And that will backfire if you are in early career. Because when you are in early career, then you have very bad quality publication, even, uh, you know, like questionable publication because of you are tempted to do that because of the incentive system, right? Uh, and then you can just publish anywhere, for example. But when you are in early career, that will be a career disaster to you in the future because then you won't have international collaboration. Who are a good international researcher that want to collaborate with you when you see your historical publication? Yeah, perhaps to wrap up, certainly the picture that we're gaining is at best these sort of things are, are something that's going to happen in, in the longer term. It sounds like the economic recovery from COVID-19 innovation through this sort of research is perhaps not going to be the, the main driver in the sorts of timeframes that we're looking at. Would that be fair? Yes, I think so. that's fair enough. Yeah. Do you see the pandemic, in fact, acting as a constraint on the development of this sort of research and innovation uh, ecosystem in Indonesia, or are the two largely separate? In the long run, actually, I think it's affecting positively because, well, people realize a lot more now. Science is very important in solving big problems like pandemic, for example. More and more people aware, realize, understand that now. And you can see, for example, vaccine development, yeah, it's mm. much quicker because of COVID-19. And then uh, what I like the most is more people understand the importance of basic research because you cannot have, uh, you know, mRNA vaccine. If you are in, in 2000, you don't approve uh, research on mRNA without knowing what was the practical implication of the research. Right? And then suddenly you realize, oh, you didn't give them funding for research on mRNA, and what will happen now? I mean, you won't have Pfizer, you won't have uh, Moderna or something. And also, I think, in Indonesia in particular, people talk about energy security, people talk about food security. Now people start to take vaccine security. I not fully agree with the jargon. When, when you talk about security in this way, it means that sufficiency. Yeah? As an economist myself, I don't really... 100% agree with sufficiency because in the, in, the, in the interconnected global market, you won't have that kind of sufficiency. You have to trade. Uh, but again, this idea, I think, is good because when you talk about vaccine sufficiency, you mean that you won't really depend a lot on other country when you need a vaccine or you need medicine. That It means that there is no way you have to do research your own, right? That is a positive implication, at least, yeah, on the people's mind about the importance of research because, look, if you want vaccine efficiency, then you have to do research in vaccine. You have to really research in mRNA if you can. I know it's not that difficult, it's not that easy, but that's just an example. So, so I think more positive way. Perhaps in a podcast where you've outlined many formidable challenges that Indonesia faces and the research and innovation sector in Indonesia faces, it, it's nice perhaps to end on that more optimistic note. <laughs> yeah. There's certainly a lot more I could ask you about, but perhaps that's a, a nice place to end things for today. So thank you for sharing your insights. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Likewise.
that was Professor Arif Anshori Yusuf, founding director of the SDG Centre at Pajajaran University in Bandung. Keep an eye out for the Policy and Focus tagline for future instalments in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia. Policy and Focus episodes are edited by Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param and appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Don't forget, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Indonesia returns on 25 November with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.